0: St. Joseph Cafasso who was born in 1811 near Turin, Italy, of peasant parents, died in 1860, is a patron saint of prison chaplains and prisoners. Besides his work with prisoners, he's probably most well-known for having been the mentor of St. John Bosco. Here's a short excerpt from his biography. Quote, St. Joseph Cafasso visited each prison in his area at least once a week, and some of them once a day. There is no case on record in which he failed to convert even the most hardened sinners among them. He singled out for special kindness criminals condemned to death. He visited all these frequently, instructed them, and prepared them for death. He accompanied them all to the scaffold, 57 from Turin prisons and 7 others from other towns. He succeeded in getting all these to go to the sacraments. He was not satisfied with merely converting them, but endeavored to make them saints. He exhorted them to accept capital punishment with resignation and told them if they did so with perfect dispositions, they were in a state to go directly to heaven without passing through purgatory. For by dying a violent and dishonorable death, they were performing the heaviest penance that could be imposed on anyone in this world. He even gave them a commission to execute when they went to heaven, which was to kneel before the throne of Mary and intercede for him. Close quote. Now, both St. Joseph of Faso as well as St. John Bosco were confident that these men, men who had been sentenced to death for heinous crimes and suffered capitalist punishment, they were confident these men had indeed gone straight to heaven and deliver the messages to Our Lady. And we shouldn't be a bit surprised at that. St. Alphonsus explains, and because this has immense practical consequence for each of us, please listen carefully. After all, no one gets out alive. St. Alphonsus, quote, He who in health makes an act of perfect conformity to the will of God will be preserved not only from hell, but also from From purgatory, though he might have committed all possible sins. The reason is that by accepting death with perfect resignation, the soul obtains a merit equal to that of the holy martyrs who willingly sacrificed their lives for Christ. St. Thomas says that it is truly to be a martyr when a person suffers death for practicing an act of virtue. From this we must infer that a man acquires the merit of martyrdom not only when he gives his life for the faith by the hand of an executioner, but also when he accepts death to render himself conformable to the will of God and to please him. This is the highest act of virtue a man can perform, making an entiring offering of himself to the divine love. As regards the kind of death, we must be convinced that the death which God has decreed for us is the one which is best for us. Therefore, as often as we think of death, we should say, Lord, let me die as it pleases Thee, only let me obtain eternal salvation. Also, with regard to the time of our death, we must be entirely resigned to the will of God. This earth is nothing more than a prison in which we must suffer and in which we are at every moment liable to lose God. Therefore, the royal psalmist, King David, exclaimed, in Psalm 141 8, bring my soul out of the prison. Penetrated by the same sentiment, St. Teresa of Avila longed for death, and on hearing the clock strike, rejoiced that one more hour of her life had passed away, and with it, one more hour of the danger of losing God. According to St. John of Avila, another doctor of the church, everyone who is only moderately well prepared for death should wish for it as we all live in great danger of forfeiting the grace of God. By a happy death, we obtain certainty that we shall never lose the grace of God. How could there be anything more precious, more desirable than this certainty? Therefore, also the saints yearned unceasingly for their heavenly home, precisely because they were inflamed with the love of God. St. Thomas teaches that the highest degree of love which a soul can attain in this life consists in the ardent desire of heaven, there to be united with God and to possess him. Close quotes, St. Alphonsus. Really important point. He who, in health, makes an act of perfect conformity to the will of God, will be preserved not only from hell but also from purgatory, even though he might have committed all possible sins. The reason is by accepting death with perfect resignation, the soul obtains a merit equal to that of holy martyrs who willingly sacrifice their lives for Christ. It's really not so hard to become a saint. After all, if murderers and criminals on death row can become saints, then why can't we? Of course, the problem is, although it's not that hard to become a saint, it's also not that hard to go to hell either. That's the whole drama of life. But today is the feast of all saints. We're celebrating this feast in honor of all our big brothers and sisters in the Church Triumphant, and that would include all those converted criminals from Turin. So, what is a saint? Well, we use the word saint in a variety of ways. We may use it, as we will hear just in a few minutes in the Creed, to refer to someone belonging to the communion of saints. In this case, as the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia explains, we mean the members of the mystical body of Christ. I quote, The communion of saints is the spiritual solidarity which binds together the faith on earth, the souls in purgatory, and the saints in heaven in the organic unity of the same mystical body under Christ its head and in a constant interchange of supernatural offices. Close quote. So, Sometimes we mean by it members of the communion of saints. We may use it in referring to someone who is still alive, whose union with Christ is so deep and palpable that it becomes obvious, even during their life, because of their life and acts and prayers. A clear example would be the case of Padre Pio, who was rightly regarded as a saint, and rightly so, for many decades before his death. We may use it in referring simply to a member of the church triumphant, anyone who is in heaven. That would be the case of St. Joseph Gaffasso's death row of penitence we just heard about. And of course, we frequently use it, and perhaps most commonly, in referring to canonized saints. So what is a canonized saint? The 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia explains canonization. Quote, canonization, generally speaking, is a decree regarding the public ecclesiastical veneration of an individual. If the decree binds the whole church, it is a degree a decree of canonization. If it only permits such worship, but now with regard to the whole church, it is a decree of beatification. Close quote. Okay. So when the Pope canonizes someone, he's expressing a judgment that a particular person may now be publicly venerated and honored as a saint by the faithful throughout the whole world. Someone who has been canonized, we call saint, like Saint Joseph Cavasso or Saint John Bosco, for example. A beatification permits such a veneration, but not throughout the whole world, typically only in the diocese or the region in which that person lived or worked, okay? And someone is beatified, we call blessed, like blessed Bartololongo or Blessed Carl Habsburg. Again, when the Pope canonizes someone, then that person may be publicly venerated and honored as a saint throughout the world by the faithful, and we call him a saint. He's beatified, he may be publicly venerated, honored as a blessed by public mancasses in his honor, for example, but not throughout the whole world, typically only in the diocese of the region in which he lived or worked. Okay. Next question is such a decision infallible? To answer this question, first we're going to briefly discuss what we mean by infallibility in general terms. And then we'll see if and how that would apply to a canonization. As we've already said at a later date, we're going to carefully explore in some detail church teaching regarding papal prerogatives, including papal infallibility. Tonight we're only going to consider it insofar as it relates to canonizations. So what is infallibility? We'll rely on the work of the late, great Frank Sheed to get a good overview of the question. There are truths about which it is vital that certainty should be possible, Since this certainty cannot be provided by man, God sees to it. That is the whole point of the doctrine of infallibility. It is important to be clear on this. God made his church infallible. In one sense, it is surprising to see how little this means, yet how totally effective this little is. When we say the church is infallible, we mean the bishops, for they are in the fullest sense successors of the apostles. And their infallibility means simply this, that whatever is taught as to the revelation of Christ by the bishops of the church cannot be wrong. God will not allow it. This does not mean that each individual bishop is prevented by God from teaching error, as we well know, or that particular groups of bishops in this or that place might not teach error, as we well know. But then when any teaching is so widely given by the bishops in the church, and we're talking about through time, not just any particular time, but we're talking about from the beginning on forward. When any teaching is so widely given by the bishops of the Church that we can say it's the teaching of the Episcopate, then we know that the teaching is true. If they teach that something is so, it is so. If they teach that something is false, it is false. And this is not by their power, but by God's power. Yet a situation might arise in which it would be difficult to tell with certainty what the common teaching of the Episcopate throughout the world actually is. It might be a matter of some problem in theology, newly posed and too urgent to be left to the sieve of theological discussion. One way or another, the occasion might arise where a definite statement of truth, a statement which is certainly true, is needed, and there is dispute or doubt as to what the Episcopate throughout the world teaches upon the matter. That is the normal ground of action for the infallibility of the Pope. Just as the apostles had their successors, the bishops, so Peter has his successor the Bishop of Rome, for Rome was Peter's own see, And the Pope is endowed with that same infallibility, with which God has endowed the church. Notice, it is the one and same infallibility whereby God safeguards the bishops as a body and the bishop of Rome as the head of the body from teaching error to his church. There is no question of inspiration. God does not promise the pope some special message or illumination. The pope must learn his doctrine like anyone else. No hidden source of doctrine is available to him that is not available to any other citizen of the kingdom. But God sees to it that when the pope gives the whole church a definition of faith and morals bearing upon the revelation of Christ, there will be no error in it. If the pope defines that a thing is so, it is so. If he defines that it's false, it is false. Close quote Frank Sheet. An analogy made elsewhere by Sheet himself might help to make this more clear. Although it's clearly ridiculous, suppose that each one of us had to take a trigonometry test here tonight. And then suppose one of us, just one of us, like that altar boy right there, was somehow infallible with respect to trigonometry. Okay, so we all take the trigonometry test. Each one of us could either get the answer right, get the answer wrong, or leave it blank. But, again, supposing the ridiculous, if he was infallible in trigonometry, he'd either get the answers right or he'd leave them blank. Okay, It's a negative protection. It protects him from being wrong, but that doesn't mean he'll be right. He just can't be wrong. Okay, so in this case, because canonizations have to do with something that pertains to faith and morals for the whole church, the Pope has, has, has something to do with it. Let's ask the question, are canonizations infallible? Under the heading Infallibility, the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia states, quote, It is commonly and rightly held that the Church is infallible in the canonization of saints, that is to say, when canonization takes place according to the solemn process that has been followed since the ninth century. Mere beatification, however, as distinguished from canonization, is not held to be infallible, and in canonization itself, the only fact that is infallibly determined is that the soul of the canonized saint departed in the state of grace and already enjoys the beatific vision? Close quote. In the article on beatification canonization, the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia further states, quote, What is the object of this infallible judgment of the Pope? Does he define that the person canonized is in heaven, or, or only that he has practiced Christian virtues in heroic degree? The formula used in the act of canonization has nothing more than this. In honor of blank, the saint, we decree and define that blessed blank is a saint, and we inscribe his name in the catalog of saints in order that his memory be devoutly and possibly celebrated yearly on the such and such day, his feast. Okay. There is no question. I'm continuing with the, with the encyclopedia. There is no question of heroic virtue in this formula. On the other hand, sanctity does not necessarily imply the exercise of heroic virtue, since one who had not hitherto practiced heroic virtue would by the one transient heroic act which he yielded up his life to Christ have justly deserved to be considered a saint. Parenthetical remark. This would certainly be the case of many martyrs mentioned in the Roman martyrology. Like You see the case if you read the martyrology every day where soldiers are taking these Catholics off to be massacred, and all of a sudden they're moved by a movement of grace to say, I'm a Christian. They jump in and get killed there. Well, it wasn't as if they were living heroic virtue up till then. They were heathens, but they got that great grace right then, and they're saints, and we can say mass in honor of them. It's also the case of, of, the, uh, of the death row criminals we just heard about. They sure, they sure wouldn't have been practicing heroic virtue to land on death row in those days. Okay, back to the encyclopedia. This view seems all the more certain if we reflect that all the arguments of theologians for papal infallibility in the canonization of saints are based on the fact that on such occasions the popes themselves believe and assert the decision which they publish is infallible. Pretty good clue. The general agreement of theologians as to papal infallibility and canonization must not be extended to beatification. Close quote. So, let's go over that real quick. Canonization is held to be infallible. Beatification is not held to be infallible. In canonization, the only fact that is infallibly determined is one, the soul of the canonized saint departed in the state of grace, and two, he is now enjoying the beatific vision. Furthermore, in the decree used by the popes when canonizing a saint, there is no question of heroic virtue, and it is essential to recognize that sanctity does not necessarily imply the exercise of heroic virtue, as we can see in the lives of certain martyrs or in the case of the death row inmates. So if papal beatifications are not infallible acts of the pope, does that mean that someone can maintain that a blessed, someone who had been formally beatified by the Pope himself? Can someone maintain that this beatification was erroneous? The great Father Faber addresses that very question in a brilliant essay written on beatification and canonization. He wrote it in 1847. He's relying in it on the teaching of St. Thomas, the great uh, Melchior Canus, St. Robert Bellarmine, and Pope Benedict XIV. Father Faber, quote, A man who should maintain that a beatification was erroneous and an approved reverence of, 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 the, of the beatus, approved reverence wrong, would not be guilty of heresy, but of scandal and temerity, close quote. So the point is, if someone were to maintain a formal beatification by the Pope himself was erroneous, he's not a heretic. He is, however, guilty of scandal and temerity, which, objectively speaking, are serious mortal sins. Okay. Then, given that canonizations are infallible acts of the Pope, if someone were to maintain that a saint were erroneous, but somehow solemnly, was erroneously but solemnly canonized by the Pope, what would he be guilty of, objectively speaking? Father Faber, quote, All we can do is to conclude practically with that great doctor of the Church, Saint Bonaventure, that it would be a most incredible and most horrible thing to doubt of the true beatitude of anyone whom the Church has canonized. Melchior Canis states that a man who did so would be temerarious, impudent, and irreligious. Pope Benedict XIV teaches that he would be rash, give scandal to the Church, dishonor the saints, favor the heretics who deny the authority of the Church in canonization, and would himself savor of heresy as preparing the way for infidels to deride the faithful that the man would be an asserter of an erroneous opinion and obnoxious to the heaviest penalties who should dare to affirm that the sovereign pontiff had erred in this and that canonization or this or that saint canonized by him was not to be reverenced with the honor due to him. And finally, as the Dominican Father Billart teaches, that whosoever should deny that anyone canonized by the church was a saint and in glory would not be a formal heretic, would be first temerarious, secondly, scandalous, thirdly, impious, And fourthly, would savor of heresy. Close quote. Father Faber. And in regards to this very question, Father Faber has some other points well worth pondering. Father Faber, canonization is the public testimony of the church to the true sanctity and glory of some one of the faithful departed. This testimony is issued in the form of a judgment decreeing to the person in question the honors due to those who are enjoying the beatific vision and reigning with God. By this degree, he is inscribed in the catalog of the saints. He is invoked in the public prayers of the church. Churches are dedicated to God in memory of him. Mass offered, the canonical hours recited, and his feast kept, and finally his picture is allowed to be painted with rays and nimbuses, denoting the glory that he has with God and public honor Is paid to his relics, like the relics up there that I'm incensing. Those are canonized saints, apostles and so forth. Okay, Father Faber continues, Given all that, can anything be imagined more awful than the idea that all this may be false and that the church may possibly err in the whole matter? Could there be a more complete triumph for the gates of hell than this, to have one who's perhaps a reprobate in the dungeons of hell burning with hatred of God and venerated on the altars of the universal church, the pillar and ground of the truth? In the church, says St. Thomas Aquinas, there can be no damnable error, but this would be a damnable error if you are venerated as a saint who is in reality a sinner. It is of great importance, says Melchior Canis, to the morals of the church that you should know to whom you ought to pay the, the reverence of religion. Wherefore, if the church could err in these matters, it might make a grievous slip in morals. For there is very little difference between reverence to a devil and doing it to a damned person. Close quotes. Father Faber. Okay, now because of the changes in the procedures in canonization, beatification, canonization, with the removal of the devil's advocate, for example, there's more change, but just that one. The devil's advocate, among other things, was to. Uh, block any causes that might cause surprise or scandal or shock to the faithful, worry the faithful, because of certain things a person did. And so they would block things, for example, the Venerable Mary of Agreda, who had all kinds of miracles. I mean, as, as you know, she bilocated here in New Mexico, 500 sometimes, all these miracles. She was blocked because of a translation into French of her works that the University of Paris got so excited about that the advocate could stop it. So the whole idea was they would always block them so nobody could throw any dirt at us. It wasn't, it's not a question of whether she's in heaven or not. Okay, that office is not, that doesn't happen anymore. But we don't have time to get it all at. But there is a lot of confusion among the faithful. For example, we were asked about the upcoming canonization of Blessed John Paul II. Father, there are a lot of, of, of Questions swirling around in my head. How can he be canonized? Because he kissed the Quran and he prayed with the pagans in Africa and there was a CC1 and a CC2, etc., etc. Don't let any of that confuse you at all. We have all the principles here. Grant all that and worse, just for the sake of the argument. And keeping in mind what we've already learned about the decree of canonization, that in canonization, the only fact that's infallibly determined is, number one, the person, the soul of the canonized state, departed this life in the state of grace, and number two, he's now enjoying the beatific vision, then just stand back and ask yourself, If I have reasonable hopes of becoming a saint, and I hope everyone here does, that should be why you're here, because that's the goal, the other option is not acceptable. If I have reasonable hopes of becoming a saint, if men on death row can be reasonably supposed to have gone straight to heaven, then why should I be the slightest bit amazed that Pope John Paul II is in heaven? He died a good death with the benefit of the sacraments and had roughly a billion people, give or take a couple million praying for him when he died. Look, if he's not in heaven, then we all got something really, really serious to worry about, okay? We've all got problems. Be at peace. Ignore those kind of questions. They're they're posed either by the enemy, trying to confuse you or something, or by people that don't have a clear lock on the teaching of the church and what a degree of canonization actually signifies. Let's keep our eye on the goal to join our big brothers and sisters in the church triumphant. After all... It's not really that hard to become a saint.